can't. I can hardly wait to hear me. <laughs> Auntie Sally doesn't see kids, but Auntie Sally is doing a monologue, so please keep the child quiet. This is a serious thing. This is a matter of life and death. Let's respect it. Now that I put a call over this whole thing. <laughs> I look at all these empty chairs and I think of what Shakespeare said, we too precious tears. But my name is Sally Carpenter and I am a member of Al-Anon. And I'd like to thank John and the committee for asking uh, Keith and I to come here and I certainly thank Karen for being a gracious hostess. And I always like to tell you that... Um, the reason probably that you have teeth as the alcoholic, or me as the Al-Anon, or any couple, is because Alcoholics Anonymous has the book as Bill sees it. Al-Anon has Lois remembers. <laughs> and I am glad to be here in Kentucky. It is. I'm so confused. Every time I get in the car with someone, they say, well, now, you know, you're really in Cincinnati, but it's Kentucky, and we're going to cross over this river and make this clover leaf, and I, so I really didn't know where I was. I woke up this morning, and I had to stop and think literally geographically where I was. But I know today that I am a member of Al-Anon, and I am happy to be here with you. Of course, um, I didn't set out to become a member of Al-Anon because I didn't set out to marry an alcoholic, but uh, Linda said it this morning. Sometimes I have to think of the things that the disease of alcoholism has done for me rather than concentrating on what it has done to me. And one of the things that the disease of alcoholism has done for me, it has taught me to tell you how I feel rather than what I think. When I came into Al-Anon, I could tell you what I think, but I could not tell you how I felt because I was raised in a family... Well, there was kind of a rule. You didn't do it, as my grandmother would say, unless it was very tasteful. And so it wasn't very tasteful, I guess, to touch and to express emotion and show any kind of feelings at all. So I grew up with a lot of shoulds and should not. I led a marathon meeting once, and the title of that was Don't Should on Me. But when I came into the Al-Anon program and started uh, being with members of Al-Anon and certainly with members of Alcoholics Anonymous, I found that that is one of the greatest things that I have learned, is to tell you that I love you and that I care and to be able to do it comfortably. Not because necessarily it's how I feel, it is how I feel, but not necessarily that, but it's because the response that I get and the good feeling that I get for having done it is tenfold, and that's what this whole thing is about, to make me feel good, make myself feel good, which I didn't feel good about myself when I came to Alamon. I have to tell you a little bit about my background. Uh, I am uh, from Indian and uh, German heritage. I was born in the state of Oklahoma, which is a dry state, and probably would account for the fact of why I never saw anybody in my family agree. So I grew up not knowing anything about the disease of alcoholism. I didn't even, I had never seen anyone drink until I met him. <laughs> but, uh, in this family that didn't drink and didn't touch and didn't express any emotion, uh, there was one uncle. 
Now, if I had known then what I know now, I probably would have had a clue about Uncle Ferris. Uncle Ferris was tall and light and dark-skinned and wore silk shirts and hand-sewn boots and Stetson hats and always had a rich widow on the street. And Uncle Ferris would go away and come back, and he'd be gone like a week or two weeks, and he'd come back and he'd sit in a rocking chair and rock silently, and the rest of the family would whisper about him. You know, they'd never say anything in front of K-I-D-S. And I know today that Uncle Ferris had a serious drinking problem. Now, I'm not caught up in statistics and all of that, but I can tell you this, that instinctively I knew at a very early age that I was the only person in that family that really liked Uncle Ferris. I think the other family members just tolerated and tried to keep him hidden away. But I liked him, and I think the reason that I liked him was he was the only person in the family that ever did anything out of order. He was really the only person that ever did anything that looked like it was exciting. So maybe there is something to that, you know, every kid has a pot, or, you know, we're attracted to the alcoholics. As my friend Sue says, I'm attracted to alcoholics, I think they're very entertaining. Anyway, in this family that uh, didn't drink and didn't do anything else, uh, my folks were divorced when I was very young. I never remember my mother and my father living. Is that my water? I don't want to drink out of any of those alcoholics that might catch it. <laughs> my folks were divorced when I was very young. I never remember them living together. Uh, they were always very civilized to each other, but I never remember them living together. And my mother, and my sister, and I, I told you I was from Oklahoma, and if you've read Steinbeck, if you're from Oklahoma, what you do is you move to California, and if you really adhere to the book, you move to Bakersfield, and that's what we do. And we moved to Bakersfield, and I started high school there, and um, I was going to a school called East Bakersfield High School. And one day I came out of the music building, and I heard this commotion on the other side of the campus, and I looked over there, and uh, my mother didn't raise me dumb kids. I looked at this guy, and he was tall and handsome, and the people were gathered around him, and he was, well, he was hip-slapping, fast-talking, you call it alcoholic charisma, is what you call it. But he was surrounded by these people, and they were paying homage to him. And I set my cap for him, and I took my pom-poms or whatever, and got his attention. And we started going together. And that was my first exposure to anyone who drank. Now, my idea of drinking was not... Well, I did, it was based on what of my information, which was based on movies and books. And you know what that is. It always takes place in a room like this, with no door, no walls, it's always windows, and it's always on the top floor, and it's always at night, and they're drinking out of the right tape glasses, and she would have on a white low-cut satin dress, and he'd have on a tuxedo, and they'd dance and giggle. Now, that's what I thought drinking was. But after I met Sue, I found out if you're really sincere about your drinking, it comes in brown paper bags between your legs, because that's the kind of drinking that he did. But I met him that day at that school, and within five minutes of meeting him, 
If you can believe this, he lied to me. <laughs> he told me that that blue convertible that he was driving was his. It wasn't as long as his mother. But you know, I believed him. Because he had that, he had that thing, you know, that alcoholics have. He had that way of looking at me, and something told me when he would look at me like that that he really believed what he was saying. And the thing that he would say that I wanted to hear most of all as the years went by were, I won't do that anymore. I won't drink like that. I'll come home. And Peggy talked about it last night. I think what he was really saying was, I don't want to hurt you. I didn't mean to do that. But when he would say those things, I would look at him, and something told me the way that he looked, that he really believed it. And after I came to Al-Anon and I started going to open AA meetings and listening to alcoholics talk, I really found out that he really didn't want to do that, that he didn't have a choice and he didn't know it. But you know, when I met Keith, and he was in junior college across town, and I was in high school, and he drank, but you know, he was so funny when he drank, and he had the best ideas, and he was cute, and you know, and he was just, he just drank like everybody that he hung out with drank. You know, what you find is, you only go with people who drink. And if you live in Bakersfield, there's not a lot to do. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but it's not the power city of the West. And everyone drank. And he could drink more than anyone, but he was always the one that took everybody home. And he was so funny, and he had funny ideas, and he'd say funny things. And it was just fun when he drank. And uh, I have to remember, too, that there were, we had a lot of good times behind drinking. It wasn't always bad. There were a lot of good times, a lot of fun times that I remember. But, of course, at that time, I know today that Keith was an alcoholic. I don't know where he crossed the invisible line. He could have crossed it in the World War, or Pop's back door, or the do drop in or Stop and Sip, or the Alibi, or the Silver Fox, or any number of those. He could have crossed it in our own living room. I don't know where he crossed the invisible line, but somewhere he crossed that line from alcoholic drinking to becoming the alcoholic. And as I remember his drinking when I met him, he drank alcoholically, but I didn't know anything about it. He had an uncle and Uncle Frank who, now he was a bad drinker. He, he would fall on that table at Thanksgiving. Now that's the problem. As a matter of fact, he sold family drinks, but they didn't drink like he did, so I didn't see any problem with that. But that's the disease of alcoholism. You know, we didn't set out to become the people that we were when we came into these programs. But uh, his drinking was no problem. And we got married, and we went, he had a scholarship to Santa Fe State College. And we went up there. And at that time, I started doing what I know that we do when we married to practicing alcoholics. I started forming the pictures in my mind. And the pictures that I had in my mind, I had to break when I came to Al-Anon because those pictures are for the normal people. My sponsor, Mary Ann, tells me normal is a gauge on my dishwasher and I shall never have it. <laughs> but the pictures that I had in my mind were not unlike I'm sure any of you had. It was you were going to have a little house with a white picket fence. 
recently graduated from San Jose. She would sit in a big overstuffed chair with an Irish setter by seat and the children huddled in the street between. I would be in the kitchen with Priscilla curtains on the windows cooking. And he would be the chairman of the athletic department. I would be the chairman of the faculty wife. And our life was going to be perfect. It was going to be just like it was in the books and the movies. So in those years at San Jose, when we would stay out with the boys too much and go to Tim's and Keith's and George's and go to fraternity parties, it was no big deal because, you know, he was in school and that's just something that he did. And as soon as he got out of school, I knew he wouldn't do that. He'd get down to the business of living and we'd do what people did in books and movies. My pictures were forming in my mind. It was very difficult for me to realize when I came to Al-Anon that it would never, ever be. But you told me that I had to break those pictures. So Keith was in school, and we had two beautiful children. Our first child was a little girl. My second was a beautiful little baby boy. And Keith graduated, and he um, he didn't uh, immediately start getting down to the business of living, I'll tell you. He uh, was drafted by the NFL, and he went up to San Francisco, and the people were very good to there, and that was an exciting life for us. And we were there for a while, and he came to me one day, and he told me we were going to move to Canada, and I thought that was a good idea, because you see, he had seemed to have taken up with these people in San Francisco that were just like the people that he had in San Jose. They were the kind, you know, that tied him to the bar stool and locked the bar doors and would not let him come home. And so I thought, this is good. And we did what I know today was our first geographic. We moved from San, from San Francisco to Canada. And it really was almost as if when we crossed the Canadian border, there must have been a big foster climate sign there that said, drink Canada dry. <laughs> and Keith must have said, what an order. I think I'll go through it. Because by now the drinking had accelerated to the point I can say he was not so cute and not so funny when he drank. But I just knew that if I could get him away from those people, that it would be okay and it would be different. And it was different because he was drinking more and more and more. And I began to do what we do. I began to trying to find the key that made him drink because I knew if I could find the key that made him drink, I could fix it. And I began to do all the things that we read in Al Anon literature and the do's and the don'ts. I didn't do any do's, but I did all the don'ts. But I only did them because I just didn't want him to drink. Because he just wouldn't drink so much. But we were in Canada. And when you drink like that in that profession, they trade you and they sell you a lot. And we saw a lot of Canada. We went from Edmonton to Winnipeg to Toronto. And by now our oldest, which is our daughter, was ready to start school. And I have a very strong, strong nesting instinct, and I wanted to come back to the state. And we came back, the children and I came back to Bakersfield, or Tim to start school. And Keith was going to stay in Canada, and he was, I left in August, and he was going to come down by Christmas, because from August to Christmas, he was going to make a million dollars. Sounded reasonable to me. He was going to sell mausoleums. When the ground gets frozen and they can't bury them, they'll put them in somewhere and make a mausoleum for them. And it sounds like a good idea to me. So I traced off to Bakersfield, back to Bakersfield with his children, so Tim could start school, and he came home at Christmas, and he hadn't made the million, but 
you know, what the heck. There was always another million around the corner. And we bought a little house in East Bakersfield. Now, it was nothing like the little house I had in the picture. But, you know, we have a lot of tenacity and stick-to-itiness and must have a huge imagination because I thought I can whip that house into shape. And I know today what happened was I had this feeling that, or this firm thought that if I could make the perfect home, he would come home. I just, Keith was not a home drinker. He loved the bars. He loved to be out there among them. Of course, if you liked to drink, you wouldn't want to drink in my house either because I could make it very uncomfortable now. And, uh, but Keith loved the bars and he drank in the bars. And so my theory was if he would come home, I could watch him and he wouldn't drink. Now that's not to say that he never drank at home, but I mean he did his serious drinking in the bars. But we bought this little house, and it wasn't really like the house in the picture, but I knew that I could put it in the shape. And what happened was my house became my second obsession. My first was his drinking. You know, we talk about the alcoholic being obsessed with alcohol. I was much more obsessed with alcohol and his drinking than he was. I don't think he ever woke up in the morning and thought, where will I drink, what will I drink, who will I drink with? And my first thought when my feet hit the floor were, where will he drink, who will he drink with, and how can I find him? And so we were in this little house in East Bakersfield, and he continued to drink. And now he was in a business that is Disneyland for drinkers, and that was he was a car salesman. To half the day and stay in the bars for half the day and sell cars. That's what he told me he did in the bars. He made all those deals and sold all those cars while he was in the bars. But we had this house, and my obsession now had turned to that. And I know today why. Because my home was the only thing that I had full control over. By now we had three children. My little dream of my perfect life had fallen apart. But my house was the only thing that I had control over. I could clean my house and it would stay clean and then I felt good. And I don't mean I just cleaned. I don't mean I just dusted and mopped. I mean I cleaned. I was the clean machine that they could feel. Now, you know, we all vent our frustrations in different ways, and mine was to keep busy. And I was busy, all right. I literally washed the baseboards with a toothbrush. I cleaned the word Christopher with a toothbrush. I would wash the soap. <laughs> if you visited me and sat still long enough, I'd dust your wax here and do something to you. Because I was obsessed with this house. I was, I was, I was hooked on Clorox and Hexol and I used to clean and run the hot water in the tub in the bathroom and sit there and smell it because it smells so clean. But I was obsessed with it and I was busy and that's how I started my day. I would clean the house all day. And you know what I found today that I basically am just a tidy person. I mean, I overshot the mark certainly there. But then, now Bakersfield gets hot, like 110 by 9 o'clock in the morning. And I have also found that an unkept lawn distresses me, depresses me. But somewhere I had read a book. Now, Linda talked about you could drink beer if you mowed the lawn. You know, well, Keith never bothered to mow the lawn, but he sure did his share of beer drinking. But I had read a book, evidently, where mowing the lawn is his job. And I didn't know it until I came down and on, but what I was doing was I had this theory that if I do his job, he's going to feel guilty and he's going to behave a little while. 
Now, Keith had never read that book, so he couldn't care less about the line. But since I liked to do it, it never occurred to me to do it early in the morning when it was cooler and evening when it was cool. I did it at the height of noon. I would whip out my push lawnmower and make it feel in that heat, and I would mow that lawn one way and back the other, and then I would manicure it, and then I would trim it, and then I would clip it, and then I would rake it, and then I'd mow it back. And all the time that I'm doing it, I am working up that anger that we work up, and that feeling of I'm doing his job, and he's down the wool door having fun. And also, too, I could think to myself, with the neighbors probably, we're looking out the window and thinking they're saying to each other, look at that. Poor little thing. He's out there doing his job and he's down to wolf or he's drinking. Now, they could say it to each other, say it to themselves, but don't ever say it to me. Do not criticize his drinking to me. Because when you criticize his drinking, what you're really telling me is my fault and I should be able to do something about it. Feel sorry for me, but don't tell me you feel sorry for me. And blame his drinking, but don't criticize his drinking to me. That was something I savored for myself, to criticize his drinking. And we'd get the lawn all mowed and cleaned, and the kids would come home. And I would make their dinner, and they'd go to bed, and then I took out my third obsession, ironing. Now, this is before the days of work and wear. And I would take out my ironing board, and I would iron. And if I was real, real lucky that night, there would be a movie on and you know what they are. Come fill the cup. Face in the mirror. Too much too soon. Lost routine. And I would iron away and I would watch those movies. And oh, and if they said something that I thought he needed to hear, I would write it down. And, uh, then I'd hang the ironing in the strategic places, in the door where he had to come in. And in the door to the bedroom. So that he would see that I had to iron at night because I had to mow his lawn in the daytime. And then he would feel guilty. And wasn't that the reason for it all? Wasn't that my job to make him feel guilty? So he would wheel into the driveway. He'd always came home. He was like, you know, the bad penny. He'd turn up, just happy-go-lucky drunk. You know, into the driveway, come in. And I was at my station in the door. It was as if the door was connected to the mouth. Because as soon as the doorknob turned, the mouth started. Now, you understand, I had had all morning while I was cleaning the house, all day while I was mowing the lawn, and all night while I was ironing, to practice my spiel. And that spiel consisted of what he did wrong that day, the day before, and so did your mother, and on and on and on. And I would greet him at the door every night with the same game, 20 questions. Where have you been? And he would tell me. And I had made my calls that day. And he was right. He'd been at the World War. He was over boxes. He'd been there. They said he wasn't, but I knew that he was. And then I came up with that profound statement. You've been drinking. <laughs> he was a very honest drunk. He said, yeah, I've had a couple. Then he made the second mistake. The first one was probably coming home. But the second mistake was he'd say, yeah, I've had a couple. So what? And when he said, so what, was my cue to go into my field that I had practiced all day. And he'd waddle over there to his listening chair, sit down, pass out. And I would stand in that talking position. So 
the one that gives you superiority. And I would tell him so what that day and the day before, and if you love us, and so does your mother. And then when I got all through with what I had to say, I would say the thing that I thought was the worst thing that I could say. And I could say the word alcoholic with a connotation of a four-letter word. And when I got all through, I would call him an alcoholic because I knew that that was the worst thing in the world that I could say to him. But when I said that, he knew that I was through and he'd waddle off the bed and pass out, so to speak, or whatever. And I would go to bed and I began to have those feelings that we hear alcoholics talk about, guilt and remorse. Because I had said things to Keith that I would not repeat today. I had called him names that I would not call him certainly today. And I had made accusations that had no foundation. But you know, my theory was he's drunk and I'm sober, so he's wrong and I'm right. And I would lay there and the feelings of guilt and remorse would come over me because I would think to myself, I wonder if the kids heard me. Now, this was a little tiny track house with paper-thin walls. You could have heard me two blocks away with your windows closed. But as soon as I could convince myself, no, 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 the kids were asleep, they couldn't possibly hurt me, I could go to sleep. So when we talk about the disease of alcoholism being a family disease, I'm here to tell you that I spread that disease far more than Keith did. As I said, Keith is just a happy-go-lucky drunk. Everybody's paid. I was the one that was homicidal. I was the one that was venomous. I was the one that was toxic. I was the streamer in the yellow. And I spread the disease of alcoholism in our family far more than Keith did. Because the disease of alcoholism is not drinking. The disease of alcoholism are those feelings that we have and that we instill in our children through our spreading that disease. But when I convinced myself and my kids didn't hear me, I could go to sleep. And the next morning I would get up and they knew what Keith was going to be like. He might not feel so hot because he might be hungover, but he certainly wasn't going to be much different than he always was. But they never really knew what I was going to be like. Maybe, maybe I'd OD'd on Leave It to Beaver or Father Knows Best or whatever. And so that morning I'd get up and I'd be all starched and cleaned and my curls on and everything would be wonderful. And maybe the next morning I'd get up and I'd be screaming and yelling until the larnix stood out of my throat. They call it primal therapy today, but it's just screaming and yelling. I'd be slamming cupboard doors and, you know, those little kids would just sit there. Or maybe I would be in that, that mood of not saying anything. You know, just that cold, dead silence. And you know, home with the disease of alcoholism has sounds. It has sounds of people screaming and yelling. Sometimes it has sounds of people hitting people. But I think the worst sound that you can have for children is that cold, dead silence. And on the mornings that I chose to be like that, those little kids would sit at the table. It was almost as if, you know, eat some cereal dry. Don't tell her there's no milk. Just don't get her started. Don't set her off. But that's the way those little kids got up every morning, and that's the way they went off to school, never knowing what I was going to be like when they left, and certainly not knowing what I was going to be like when they came home. So when we talk about the disease of alcoholism being a family disease, I'm here to tell you that I stand here as an example, but I know that it is. And the kids would come home, and you know, and I had done my thing with Jesus, and telling him what he should and shouldn't do. And sometimes he would behave a couple of days, and sometimes not. 
But I would set myself up on that merry-go-round that we put ourselves on. If we didn't drink for a day, I just knew that I had found the key. But of course, the disease of alcoholism progressed, and uh, he came to me one day and he said, well, we're going to move from Bakersfield. And now, the one good thing about Bakersfield that I can tell you is that both our families live there. Now, when I think about what the disease of alcoholism did for me, I can tell you just what it did for me. It took us back to Bakersfield, where both our families were, so our children had some sort of stability, sometimes extended family. And had we lived in my little house in my picture in the Midwest somewhere, you know, I would have had my big secret, and those kids wouldn't have had that. And in Bakersfield, they had both sets of grandparents, and so they had a major stability they certainly weren't getting from us in our house. The chief came to me and he told me that we were going to move from Bakersfield and we were going to move to Los Angeles. Well, you live in Los Angeles and you go to, I mean, if you live in Bakersfield and you want to go to Los Angeles, it's, it's a big time city. And all I knew about Los Angeles was the Coliseum and the bar across the street, Sealy's Bar. But we didn't move there. We moved to Woodland Hills. And Woodland Hills depicts exactly what it is. It's a very tree-covered area, and we lived at the corner of Preston and San Luciano. And if you had given me a house out of my picture, that would have been it. And so now I knew that our troubles were over. We were away from all those people in Bakersfield that tied into the bar schools and locked the bar doors. And we were in a new surrounding, another geographic. The only thing now the drinking had progressed more and more and more in life. My disease has certainly progressed more and more and more. And the children now were at the age where, you know, they had their own things going at school and they didn't, they didn't necessarily want to hear my haranguing and my yelling and screaming. And so they got busy with their own lives. And we moved to Woodland Hills and Keith went into his own business because, um, I don't know, he gave me some reason that other people didn't understand and he couldn't work for them. And he went into the pool sales, swimming pool sales and service building business. He did well for a while. But sometimes he got swimming pools and pool tables mixed up, I think, because he seemed to spend a lot of time in the bars. And the drinking now had progressed to the point where he, I tell you, he was not funny and he was not cute. And, uh, this, and the arguing and the, the things that go on when there's drinking in the home began to happen in our home. And I began to do what we worked so hard to do. I became, became those two people. I became the chairman of the faculty wives outside, the PCA, the joiner, the Cub Scout, the Bluebird leader, all those things. And then inside the house I was extremely crazy lady. And I was thoroughly convinced that no one knew our secret. And I was, uh, you know, throwing the clothes out on the lawn at three o'clock in the morning and realizing the neighbors would see them at six and they got up and I'd go out and gather them in. If they said anything, I would say, well, I was going to give them to the college army or I changed my mind. And always working to keep the image up. And volunteering teaching. If you wanted anything done for school carnival, oh, my husband will do it. And then, you know, what would happen? He would be drinking or thinking about drinking or would have had a beer when he got there and I'd be disappointed and I'd feel responsible. But Keith was, uh, you know, drinking and he was as good a father and as good a husband as anybody could be. Only I didn't see it. All I saw was the drinking. 
And so I constantly was looking for reasons, things to make him not drink. So once I signed him up as a host for Little League, or for Pop Warner, and he would come every night to the park to coach those kids, but every night he was drunk. And, uh, you know, my idea of drunk was falling down, but I'm sure that there were times when he just had been drinking excessively. I didn't consider drunk, but I'm sure the other parents did. So I once again set myself up for those disappointments that we do. He continued to drink, and uh, the children now were at the age where they didn't want to hear it. And they would say, you know, oh, Mom, you know, whatever you're going to do, do, but i got things to do and places to go. One night, I uh, I looked out the window for Keith to come home. I heard the truck drive up. He literally rolled out of his head. Now, by now, he had gained a lot of bloated weight. The beer cans rolled out of the car, out of the truck when he opened the door. And I looked, and the person I saw, I didn't recognize. And you know, before, when I would stand at the window and I would see him drive up, that adrenaline would start going and that anger would, would rise up, and that gave me the license to say anything I wanted to say. But this night I looked at him and he had on khaki clothes, a khaki uniform that he wore, and it had holes in it from the acid and the chlorine. And he was bloated and he had that look, that look that alcoholics have in their eyes of despair. And that feeling of anger didn't come up in me. A feeling came over me that I didn't recognize, but I was uncomfortable with it. And I didn't know what that was until I came to Alan on and he told me. The feeling that I had that night, and I looked at this man and I thought, you know, what happened? What happened to that nice young man that I married? The father's my children. And all those plans that we had. The feeling that I had was compassion, and I didn't recognize it until I came to Al-Anon and went to him, opening in meetings, and we talked about it. And there was a man in Al-Anon, Father Fred, who said that members of Al-Anon and members of Alcoholics Anonymous are probably the only people in the world who truly love alcoholics. I think doctors maybe understand a little bit of the physical aspect, and psychologists maybe what goes on in their head. But nobody really loves an alcoholic, like members of Al-Anon, members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was the feeling that I had that night, and I didn't understand what it was. And I turned and I went back to bed. And now I had gotten a little job because I'm not a fast study, and many times I had run away from home, and I would, you know, find myself in the parking lot of the market when it opened, and I had no money, and I was in my bathrobe, and I'd have to take the car home for him to go to work. But I was going to leave forever. And I uh, I had decided that I was really going to leave. I needed to get some money together. So I had gotten a job. And what happened when I got this job was I did what we learned to do in Al-Anon. I had gotten out of peace life so that he could see what was happening. Because I had to get up and go to work. I couldn't wait up for him every night. And he called me one day at this job. He told me that he had called AA. Now, my nightly prayer was, God, if you will let him quit drinking, I will do anything. God, if you will let him quit drinking, I will do anything. Now, not go to Al-Anon, mind you, because a lady had told me about Al-Anon before that. But, you know, we come when we want to, not when we're, not when we're supposed to. 
And probably that night I had said that prayer, God, if you will let him quit drinking, I will do anything. And when he called, told me that he had called AA, my first thought was, AA, well, he's not that bad. <laughs> he just drinks a beer while he mows the lawn or something. But, you know, what happened was I forgot what it was like, and uh, I thought, he doesn't need to go to AA, but if he insists, I'll go. And so I rushed home from my job. I just got up from the table that I was working at and went home. And there was a man there doing what alcoholics do. He was making a 12-step call on me. But he had not read the right material for this job. They had assigned him, I can tell you. Because he didn't tell Keith he had to mow the lawn. He didn't tell him he had to clean out the garage. He didn't tell him he had to quit drinking. He told him some horrendous story that was unlike Keith's drinking. He told him how physically abusive he was. And Keith had never hit me. I'd hit me a hundred times if I'd have been Keith, if he'd hit me, he'd have a different hour on figure today. But he didn't tell him anything that I thought he should tell him. And he certainly didn't tell him he had to quit drinking. He told him his story, which is what he should have done. And in order to prevent this poor man from embarrassing Alcoholics Anonymous and himself any further, before he left, I whipped out a scrapbook that I had worked diligently on for years. And in this book were everything that I had ever read in the Reader's Digest, very authentic information about drinking. I had uh, copied down everything that I could find in the library about alcoholism and drunkenness. I had uh, copied things that I heard on the radio. I had written the health and welfare department about a pill they were going to have. And I had it all in this scrapbook. And I even had the ethnic heritage. The Indians and the Swedes were right up there in the top ten that couldn't drink and stupid Swedes. And he didn't even point that out to that man. So I cornered this poor unsuspecting soul and bored him with my scrapbook. And he did something that day that alcoholics have continued to do for the last 28 years. He put his arm around me and he said, it's going to be okay, Sally, and I'll come back and I'll pick up speech tonight and take him to a meeting. And by the way, while I'm gone, I'll have this lady call you about Al-Anon. Well, he did. He came back, took speech to a meeting, and she called about 7 o'clock, dressy and pushy. <laughs> insisted that I go to a meeting that night and I explained to her very kindly that I had very important things to do. Now I hadn't done anything unimportant in years but I was going to have something so important to do that I could not go that night and that was Thursday night July 20th 1967. But I told her that I probably if I checked my calendar I could work it into my schedule for the next night. So the next night, I did something that I hadn't done in a long time. I went to the closet, and I got out the good dress. You have a good dress that you kept for special occasions. And you know, you only wear that good dress on special occasions, because when you live with the disease of alcoholism, and you want to feel validated about being the victim, you have to, you have to dress like the victim. So consequently, you wear your basic pitiful. And you, they're always just a size too big, and you always kind of shuffle, and you kind of slouch, and you, you sigh an awful lot. Like you sigh when you're carrying the ironing between him and the TV when it's on. You get right in front of him with that basket and go, 
And if you're real, real lucky, you had a friend who was an Avon dealer. And she would give you those little tiny, tiny samples of lipstick. And you could dig around in there with a bobby pin. You'd never buy yourself any, but you could, you know, you just, you just have to validate being a victim. It's work to be a victim. But this night, my husband, I'll have you know, was sober a day in a row, and I was going to go to Al-Anon, and they were going to ask me how I did it, and they were going to listen to me, so I got all dressed up, and I went to Shadow Ranch in Sonoga Park to my first Al-Anon meeting on July 21st, 1967. And I've heard members of Alcoholics Anonymous say it, and I've heard members of Al-Anon say it. I walked through those doors, and I saw you people with the looks in your eyes, and the lights in your faces, and those twelve steps, and those twelve golden traditions, and I found everything that I was looking for. And I stand here today and tell you, on that night, on July 21st, I walked into that room, and I found everything that I had been looking for. And it took me about two minutes to find it. Because I went looking for all the things that made me different, and made me not belong. And if you come to Al-Anon, and you want to be different, you'll find it. And if you go to Alcoholics Anonymous and not belong, you'll find it. And it took me about two minutes because there were people there who weren't dressed up, for heaven's sake. There were people there whose husbands were still drinking. Mine was at his second meeting, which I thought was a little excessive. There were people there whose kids were misbehaving. Mine certainly weren't. And there were people there who lived with physically abusive husbands. And they didn't ask me... uh, how I did it and how I got into eggs. All I remember was they patted me a lot and said, it's okay, honey. <laughs> I had been raised correctly. I stayed for the hour and a half for their boring little meeting with their little kindergarten phrases of first things first and let go in the garden. It's okay, honey. And I thought, this is why they sit in basements of hot churches on July nights because they don't have any better sense and they can't read because they talk in little short phrases. And uh, so I told them that I thought that was a wonderful program and I assured them I would be back and I was convinced that I would never ever set foot in another Al-Anon meeting. I didn't need it. He was sober. It was Friday. Saturday, he'd clean out the garage. Sunday, we'd go on a picnic. Monday, we'd be in a higher income bracket. I mean, we were, we were on our way. And those poor old broads could sit there in their hot church if they wanted to. But you know, I have found in this program we get exactly what we can handle exactly when we can handle it. Because when I started out of the room that night on my first night of an Al-Anon meeting, I looked down on the literature table and there I was convinced why they talked in little short phrases. I was not allowed to read comic books when I was growing up. And they had reduced this whole serious thing to a comic book. Jane's husband drinks too much. Now, I saw the comic book that night, and I gave it a wide draft. But two years into Al-Anon, I was ready, I guess, to handle my feelings that came over me. Because I had sat in meetings for two years, and you had talked about guilt, and I thought, well, that's just too bad. I don't feel guilty. I never did anything wrong. I was right, and he was wrong. But I was two years in Al-Anon, and I was doing what my program had taught me to do. I was picking up literature for a newcomer, and I looked at the picture. I really looked, and I could have posed for that picture, and I'm sure some of you in this room could have too. Jane standing at the window, looking out to the niche and blinds, baby in her arms, child on each side. 
And I knew what those little kids were saying to her because mine said it to me, Mother, can I, will you take me? And my answer was always, don't bother me, I'm busy. And I was busy playing those games that make the night go by until he comes home. If one Volkswagen passes before 10 American-made cars, he'll come home before 2 o'clock. If I can go to the market and see a lady with a baby in a stroller, he will come home before 2 o'clock. If I put the sheets on the bed with a big hem at the foot and sit at the top, he will come home before 2 o'clock. And those were the things that I did. So when I looked at that picture, after two years in Al-Anon, I had that feeling of guilt, and that guilt was it. The guilt that a mother feels for having taken the only thing that she is the only person in the world able to give her children at the mother's time and the mother's love. But I couldn't have handled that feeling that first night. But I left that meeting that night assured that I would never have to go back. I mean, he was sober, wasn't he? Well, you know, it doesn't matter what your motive is for coming to Al-Anon or going to Alcoholics Anonymous, I guess. But I got to tell you, my motive for coming to Al-Anon was pure, unadulterated fear. Because now he's not drinking, and I am living with somebody I didn't know. Because Keith was a daily drinker. By that, I don't mean he fell down on the floor drunk every day, but he was a daily drinker. And now he's not drinking at all, and things begin to change. It's like living with a stranger. And he was going to meetings, which I didn't understand. I mean, he was really excessive about this meeting thing. Every night, come on. never occurred to me that he drank every day. Maybe he needs a meeting every night. But, and anyway, the meetings didn't start till 8 or 8.30, and he would leave the house sometimes at 6.30, and they were over by 10 or 10.30. He wouldn't get home till 12 o'clock. And I just didn't understand that. You see, I didn't know the difference in the fellowship and the program. And I didn't understand that the fellowship was as important to him as the program. So I started riding shotgun to make sure that's where he was going. And I would go to those AA meetings, and I would go in the door, and they would say, Oh, are you an alcoholic? And I was like, well, of course not. Well, after that, they didn't pay me attention. They didn't even ask me how I felt, or they certainly didn't ask me. They never even asked me to leave the silent meditation. Nothing. They just ignored me. And it seemed to me that there were an awful lot of attractive women in those meetings. And it made sense to me that when he was drinking, he drank in bars. Women drank in bars. And they always had a lot to talk about then. Now they all got sober, so they had a lot to talk about, and all I'd ever talked about was his drinking. So we didn't have a lot to discuss, and it seemed to me that these women in this meeting, that he, other than the meetings that I went to with him, he must be going to women's stags, because it seemed to me a lot of women were calling, and it seemed to me that they must have a little crash courses for alcoholics, to learn those little phrases to sort you, things like, I'm doing the best I can do. Well, big deal. You're not drinking. And I would go to those AA meetings and it would be, it seemed to me that they would say, the alcoholic would get up and he'd say, well, <laughs> well, I wrecked the car and I spent the rent money and I shot the dog and the kids ran away and everybody'd say, oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And I would just get so angry and they'd say, how long has it been now, Keith? And he'd say, oh, it's been two weeks since I had a drink. Isn't that wonderful? And they never, ever applauded me for sticking with him or anything. And so I just quit going to AA meetings because it only aggravated me. And then he'd come home with those little phrases. Well, I'm doing the best I can do. Or 
The one that I hated most was Clancy Says. So I began to do what I have seen people do. I, when I was new and I would hear people say, well, she or he won't be happy till they drink again. And I thought, what a terrible thing to say. But you know, in reality, I think that was the feeling that I had because I began to resent Alcoholics Anonymous. I began to resent this thing called sobriety. And I wouldn't have been too unhappy if a train hadn't run over Clancy and all those women. So I decided that what Keith needed to do was stay home. Now, he wasn't drinking. He just needed to be home, and he could clean out the garage and do all those things together. So I decided that I was going to compete with the ladies in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went down, and I had my hair frosted. Remember frosting? Who was it? Peggy talked about it. I didn't know you had to keep it up. I just thought you had it done. And Keith was so into this AA business that he was going to meetings morning, noon, and night, and he was on panels, and he came home one day, and he, one Saturday morning, and he said, well, I'm going to go to Tehachapi to the men's prison to the panel. Now, I had to stay home and clean house because I had to work the rest of the week, and I let him know that, too. And uh, he said, somebody's going to pick me up, and we're going to go, and I'll be home later today. Well, I had decided that... Uh, in order to keep them home, I would have this frosted hair. But this morning, I was standing in the kitchen in one of our famous, it's all your fault robes. That's those little chenille numbers where the chenille is gone, where you picked it off while you're standing at the window waiting for him. Got a little chlorine hole in it, a little chocolate on it, a little Kleenex coming out of the pocket. It's usually tied to something that never belonged to that garment, I'll tell you. A belt or something. And uh, I had on those wonderful rubber go-aheads, you know, that we used to wear. And this unkept frosted hair. And I'm standing in my kitchen, and he's right. She comes right up in our driveway in her big black car to pick him up. Now, I was driving the pickup at the time. And she drove into the driveway. And remember the old Loretta Young show? And she was opening the door. Well, that's the way what Wanda did. Wanda just floated in my living room. Now, this lady might have looked like Godzilla. I don't know what she looked like. But to me that day, the way my self-esteem was, she looked like a cross between Sarah Fawcett and Raquel Welch. If she'd had a meat coat, it would have been dragging behind her. And she floated into the living room and she said, Oh, Keith. <laughs> Then she looked at me and she said, What was her name? I thought, You're going to know my name, bitch. And I had sudden recall of that first meeting that I went to when they talked about two programs in one home when they talked about self-esteem, when they talked about the feelings of anger and resentment about sobriety. So you see, it doesn't matter why you come to Al-Anon, but I am so grateful that that day in my kitchen I hit my bottom before Keith had hurt. <laughs> you know, and we get what we need exactly when we're supposed to have it, because... <laughs> The next day, would you believe that he got a 12-step call 
and the lady, the man said, did your wife go to Al-Anon? And I said, certainly, I'm a member of Al-Anon. I've been to one meeting. <laughs> Let me tell you about my program. So I followed Keith up there on that 12-step call, and I told Valerie all about Al-Anon that I had remembered. And that's why I know today that you can have one hour in Al-Anon and you have something to give away. Because I only repeated to Valerie exactly what those ladies said to me. And today she still goes to Al-Anon. Linda talked about it this morning, you know. How do you, how do you make the newcomer feel welcome? You know, you don't have to inundate them with literature and tell them about the program. You can show them a chair and get them a cup of coffee and let them know that they're welcome. And that's the way those ladies made me feel. But see, I was looking for something very complicated and intricate. I didn't want the simplicity of the program. But I told Valerie about that meeting, and I said, I think you should go to a meeting tonight. And I took her to the Thursday night open discussion for Zana meeting. And that became my home meeting the next 17 years, every Thursday night. And my sponsor told me, I'd better be there short of death, and it better be my own. So for the next 17 years, I was at that meeting. Then Keith's job took us to St. Louis for six months, and that's fortunate I was only there six months because I'd managed to alienate every member of Al-Anon in St. Louis by telling them they didn't do it right. <laughs> then we moved to Chicago, and I got a clue there when at a meeting they read, this is a such-and-such meeting, and we don't do it like they do in Southern California. But you know, and then we moved to New York. But I have found the program works everywhere. The people are different, but the program is the same. And then we moved to Hawaii. We were in Hawaii for five years. We came back to the mainland. And when we lived in um, Woodland Hills, there was a lady across the street that worked, and her husband would come home at night, and she would drive in the driveway, and she would turn on her electric garage door open. And that became my idea of what a perfect life was, a garage door open. And I really thought they must have a perfect life. He obviously didn't drink and she had that electric garage door open. Well, when Keith and I go home Sunday night, I'm going to wheel into my driveway and I'm going to pull down my visor and press my electric garage door open. You know, if we're patient long enough, these things happen. <laughs> But I started going to uh, Al-Anon in uh, Tarzana, and as I say, we moved from St. Louis to Chicago to New York to Hawaii, and we were back on the mainland now a little over five years. And last uh, May 31st, Keith and I moved to Indian Wells, which is in the desert, and it's a beautiful place. The things that have happened in the last 28 years, if you had told me were going to happen when I came into Al-Anon, the positive things, I would have said, oh, well, that'll never happen to me. And the things that just happened, the adversities, which are just life, I would have thought, well, if that's what Al-Anon is, I'm not going to stay. As I told you, we had three children, three totally different personalities. Same parents, same fights, same alcoholism, same everything. But each child has their own personality. Our daughter, our daughter was described once by a teacher, she said to me, when Kim walks in a room, it's like a ray of sunshine. Now, any mother would like to hear that, and that's the truth. And uh, Kim was the kind of girl that I could tell would be home at midnight. She'd be home at five minutes, too. 
But somewhere along the way, the disease of alcoholism entered her life, and drugs and alcohol took over her life. And for 17 years, that young lady did the things that lady alcoholics do that destroy their lives. And uh, Keith and I got a call one night that um, she was in St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, they thought. And she was, and she had been in a bad car wreck. And at this time, she had been in the business of where her face was her fortune. And this face, her face was totally destroyed. And after that, for the next 17 years, she drank and used and overate and searched for God and truth and all those things that happened. And uh, all the things that happened to the lady who do that happened to her. And all I could do was I could pray for her physical safety because I knew if she physically could make it, that she would make it spiritually and emotionally. And that's what happened. She came to Keith and I one day and she told us that she had gotten married and that she was going to move to Pony, Montana. Well, I don't know if you know where Pony, Montana is, but it's this town of 80 people. And I didn't realize then that that was her last geographic. But you can get in as much trouble in Pony, Montana as you can in Hollywood. And they have jails in Montana and they have them in Hollywood. And she, uh, she has a distinction though. She was the first lady to ever be in the new Malibu County Jail. <laughs> she told me that when she was down here the other day. But she went to Montana and uh, that's where she found the program. She didn't find it in her father's group uh, or in Los Angeles. She'd been in and out, in and out, but that's where she was ready. And last May 24th, she had nine years being sober and clean. And our second son, uh, he's the one that sometimes keeps in that day. I wonder if he really belongs to us. Because he is truly what you call normal. You know, he uses his belt and shines his shoes and there's no stuffing coming out of his car seat and owns his own house and he's in business with his father and he's just a normal person. But when Keith, his name is Keith and when he got out of high school, he told us that he wanted to go to Washington and be a fisherman and that's what he did. And he went on a boat up to Alaska and he called us and he told us that he was going to, he met a little girl and he was going to get married. And he asked me, he said, can we get married in the backyard, Mom? Now, here's a young man that didn't bring his friends home for cookies after school. Not because her father drank, but because crazy lady here. He never knew what she was going to be doing. And we said, of course. So he had this most important day of his life in our backyard. Now, this was in the 60s. And, you know, you lived close to the earth then. So there was nothing man-made, Every, uh, everything was natural, and uh, they made their own fish and canned it and served it. And Annie made her own dress, and they had their friends, the princes and the frog were the musicians, the frog played the guitar and the princess sang, and uh, there's spring and singing and strumming, and Annie comes out of the pool house in this dress that looks a great deal like a gunny sack to me. <laughs> and the non-programmed family, you know, all kind of looked in the gap. But my Al-Anon just kicked right in because I thought, isn't that nice? His tennis shoes match her dress. <laughs> and so they were married and, uh, you know, and then they decided to get with the establishment so their lifestyle is much different today. And then we have our youngest, and we have Kyle. 
Now, when I was new in Al-Anon and I used to sit in those meetings and I'd hear those old broads say, I am so happy I'm married to an alcoholic. I think, Jesus, give me a list to make alphabetically. Alcoholic wouldn't be on there. But I am so grateful today that I'm married to an alcoholic. Because if Keith had gone to Alcoholics Anonymous and he had told you what he needed to tell you and you had said, I'm sorry, Keith, you don't belong here. And I'd come to Alan and told you how I felt and what I needed to tell you and you had said, I'm sorry, Sally, you don't belong here. Where would we have gone? Because Keith is an alcoholic and I suffer from my life being affected by the disease of alcoholism. But unfortunately, I don't think Kyle is an alcoholic. He has a great difficulty with life and uses those other drugs. And uh, I often think, you know, if we did just had him stuff when he was about six months old, we probably would have just been better off. Because at 13, he uh, he just changed, I guess. I don't know. And he's had a difficult time. And he's been in and out. He was sober and clean, supposedly an alcoholic synonymous for three years. But he's married today to a nice young lady who teaches school. And, and she has some children. And he seems to be doing okay. You know, like my friend Benoit says, it's sometimes better to just wonder how your kids are doing than to know. <laughs> but he's a delight, and I love my children, and uh, I am so grateful that in all the years that they were each doing their thing, that I never shut the door on them. When I was new in Al-Anon, my sponsor talked about working the steps, and I was so concerned how I would do that. I didn't have a great deal of problem with the second step, but I, she told me when I came to my first meeting, I had worked the first half of the first step. I had admitted I was powerless, and that's true because I didn't come until I totally admitted I was powerless. But someone had given Keith a copy of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous the way they were originally written, and originally the seventh step says, humbly on our knees. And when I read that early in my program, I made a commitment to myself that I would get on my knees every night. And the prayer I said that night some 27 and a half years ago is the same prayer I said last night, and I'll say it tonight if I don't forget. I'm grateful for everything that he's given me, and I'm grateful for everything that he's left me. But I'm more grateful for everything that he's taken away, because he's taken away those feelings of despair and that knot in the gut and a hole in the stomach. And he's replaced it with friends and conferences and people all over the world in the program. And so I'm so grateful for that. Keith and I were also in San Diego. I was, were, I worked on the Al-Anon committee for um, that convention. And it, it was an exciting, overwhelming thing to sit in that stadium. But I always, that was our fifth international. And in 1980, when we were in uh, New Orleans, the New York World Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous had asked Keith that he would chair the uh, marathon. And Thursday night, we went into the uh, Sheraton Hotel in New Orleans, and they started putting up balloons, and there were flags from every country represented at that convention. And the theme of that conference was the joy of living. And Sunday morning, they took the candle that they lit Thursday night at midnight over to the Superdome. And I sat in that Superdome with 50,000 people, Keith's sponsor, my sponsor, and our friends in these programs. And I looked up on the stage, and they brought the candle in, and Keith was up on that stage at the Superdome. And I thought, how did we get here? How did those two young people from East Vegas still get to New Orleans at the Superdome? And then I looked at the theme that was on a big flag across the back, and the theme was the joy of living. 
And I realized at that moment I've had more than my share, and for that I'm grateful, and I thank you. Thank you.